Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. Well, last week we started a series called Becoming Disciples, and we talked about um, Jesus' last physical command for his followers and his disciples after he rose from the dead and right before he ascended. And his message was pretty simple. Go preach the gospel to every creature and make disciples of everyone. And so last week we talked about how it's important for followers of Jesus to actually pursue him in a discipleship effort. And the, one of the, we only had one point of our message last week, and the message was to carry your cross, or to, to take up your cross and follow him. And we talked about, if you, ha- if you missed that message, you need to go back and listen to it, because that whole idea of carrying your cross, taking up your cross, means you lose the right to live your life in a selfish manner, in the way that you want to live it, and you give it over, you submit your will to God, and you follow the way that Jesus would lead. This week, what we're going to do is we're going to continue looking at two more areas of um, of areas that disciples of Christ um, operate in. And so I want to read a scripture that we read last week, but we kind of focused on the 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 top portion of the scripture. I want to focus on the 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 bottom part of the scripture. And if you're not taking notes, um, I I would encourage you to do so. Well, one of the things that we do here at RCC is that we provide notes for everybody every week. And so if you'd like to follow along with this message with the notes, you can go right now to rccphoenix.com and click on the media link. And if you scroll to the bottom of the page, all of the notes for the last several weeks are there, including this message. And you can grab them real quick. If you don't want to do that, no problem. Pull out a pen and a piece of paper or a note-taking app on whatever device you're on and follow along with us because we pray every week the Holy Spirit speaks to you something specifically for you. So let's read this scripture, Matthew 28. 16 through 20. Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some of them doubted. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The first point we're going to go through today is simply this. Disciples of Christ act on the commands of Jesus. Let me repeat that. Disciples of Christ act on the commands of Jesus. Uh, Doug Greenwald was a biblical teacher and the founder of a ministry called Preserving Bible Times. Now, the goal of this ministry is to provide context to the scripture by offering teachings and explanation on culture and history and geography of the biblical times. Now, when um, I say the word context, what do I mean? Well, context very simply means shedding light on the meaning of a word or passage. Context sheds light on the meaning of a word or a passage. So, so let me give you a quick example of something in context, okay? It might be a little funny, and if you're not a sports person, 
just hang with me because even though this statement I'm about to make is sports uh, is based in sports, I'm sure even if you hate sports, like my wife, <laughs> even if you hate sports, you uh, have probably heard this statement before, and it's keep your eye on the ball. I'm sure almost everybody has heard that before. Well, let's pretend for a second that baseball didn't exist. And in my opinion, that would be a better world because it is boring. It's a perfect way to take a nap. If you play baseball, I'm sorry, but I, I just can't do it. Um, probably because I was really bad at it as a child and um, I was just terrible. So I just erased baseball right out of, my <clears throat> out of my memory. But let's just pretend for a second that baseball did not exist today and we didn't know what it was. But it did exist in the biblical times and Paul made this reference somewhere in scripture. Now he didn't do this. I'm not adding to the scripture. Don't forget on me. Just giving you a quick example, okay? So let's say that in the scripture we saw this saying that said, keep your eye on the ball. Don't be distracted by the sins of the world. Keep your eye on the ball and focus on Jesus. <clears throat> now let's fast forward 1900 and some odd years to today. And here we are reading a scripture that says, keep our eye on the ball. Well, remember, we don't know what baseball is. We don't know anything about it. And so can you imagine people today taking a ball, like I'll just pretend my fist is a ball, and they read the scripture and go, keep your eye on the ball. What does that mean? Am I supposed to like put it in front of my face and just watch it back and forth? Or if you're a literal person, you may think, I got to take my eye and put it on the ball. Keep my eye on the ball, right? <clears throat> now you're probably laughing because we understand the context, but if you did it, I'm sure, you know, if we were living today and we didn't understand what that meant, I'm sure some Christian clothing company would come up with like a hoodie or something that had a pocket on it that you could put a ball in and so you could fulfill the scripture of, you know, keeping your eye on the ball or making like an eye patch or something, you put a ball in that you could keep your eye on the ball because we've got to do what the scripture says. Well, that would be taking a statement out of context. It's not what it means. If you're not familiar with this, with this statement, keep your eye on the ball, it basically means if you're a baseball player and you're in the outfield and you have a glove on or a mitt and the ball's hit up in the air and it comes to you, a lot of kids, when they first learn how to play, they kind of close their eyes and turn their head and just put their glove up in the air and 99 times out of 100, they don't catch the ball. Why? They didn't keep their eye on the ball and coaches teach this, this premise to all baseball players at some point in time during their career as a baseball player, even if it was short like mine. <clears throat> if you are a batter and you're trying to hit the ball, some people get scared because it's coming so fast and um, they close their eyes and just try to swing and they're not very good at it. Well, the coach would tell people in that scenario, keep your eye on the ball. What does he mean? Keep your focus on the main thing. So if I say keep your eye on the ball and you take a ball and put it on your eye, <laughs> that's out of context. But if I say keep your eye on the ball and you, and you think I have to keep my focus on the main thing, that would be that statement in a proper context. This is very important when we read scripture and we get into this and, and start reading some of these things. It's very important that we understand that. And one of the things that this ministry that Doug Greenwald uh, founded <clears throat> was he was trying to provide context so that people would have a greater understanding and know the meaning of a word or a passage. You know, for us as Christ followers and Christians, we're often referred to by other people that are, who are Christians. We're, we're often referred to um, as believers or as people who are not saved, they refer to us as believers or followers of Christ. 
Well, so this word believe is rooted in the scripture that says, if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart, the Lord Jesus and that Christ raised from, and that God raised Christ from the dead, we will be saved. And that's where we kind of get this, uh, this concept and this statement, becoming a believer in Christ. Well, this statement, um, Doug Greenwald dug into the cultural meaning of this statement. Okay, <clears throat> so let's take a look at Doug's definition of the cultural understanding of the biblical word believe. Of the biblical word believe. Let's, let's look in context what this word believe really means. Okay, I'm going to read a quote for him, and if you have the notes, you can follow along with me. Believe is a verb. Believe is a verb. The Jewish understanding of the word believe was not based on an intellectual assent to a creed, a doctrinal statement, or a series of faith propositions. Rather, to a first century disciple, the, the word believe is a verb in which you willingly submit to your rabbi's authority regarding his interpretation of God's word in every area of your life. Thus, to say you were a disciple in the name of a man named Gamaliel meant that you totally surrendered your life to Gamaliel's way of interpreting Scripture. As a result, you, as a disciple, conformed all of your life's behavior to his interpretation. <clears throat> what does that mean? It means that, if, that when, we, when, when the, the, the early church were became believers in Christ and the disciples knew that this word believe implied action. It was a verb. It meant, you know, in our culture today, you can almost take the word believe and replace it with agree. Someone makes a statement, do you believe that? Sure, man, yeah, whatever you say. It's kind of more of agreement. It's not really a, a, a verb as this describes it. So when you read scripture and you, and you hear them talking about becoming believers in Christ and Jesus saying, believe in me, he's not just saying, oh yeah, just tell me you believe in me and yeah, I'm good and say these words. No, he's saying that there has to be an action behind the word believe. This definition shows us clearly that, there, that these disciples, when they say, I believe Jesus, they're surrendering their life and the way they want to interpret things to their rabbi, their teacher, Jesus. So, <clears throat> if that scripture we read says to go into the world, make disciples, and teach all disciples to obey the commands I've given you, what are some of the foundational commands that we have to act upon as believers as we're becoming disciples? What do we have to act on? And I just want to go over two quick um, foundational commands that Jesus gave his disciples that we're supposed to act on. The first is this, letter A. Love God and love people. Love God and love people. Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40 says this. Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two 
commandments. So knowing that as disciples, if we're going to become true disciples and we're going to, we're going to do what the, the word believe means and we're going to submit to what Jesus is teaching us and asking us to do and these commands that have been given to us in Scripture, we have to then ask ourselves, if I'm going to be a disciple, do I love God with everything I have? I'm not going to ask you the question. That's for you in your time alone with the Lord to ask. I'm going to ask it of myself. And honestly, I would like to say, yes, I do. <clears throat> I, I do. But is there any area in my life where I'm still wrestling with, you know, flesh or doing what I want to do and trying to put that to death? And I would have to honestly say to you today, yeah. Is there areas where I need to love people? And I would like to tell you, especially as a pastor, yes, I love people, but he doesn't say love people. He says, love your neighbor, love other people as yourself. Would I say that I do that 100% of the time? And I, honestly, I look back on the last several weeks or several months and I would go, maybe I didn't. I love them to a point, but I love them the same way I would say I love myself. And I would like to say I hit the mark maybe half the time, maybe 60% of the time, but that's not what he says. He says the blanket statement all the time. If I'm going to be a disciple, I have to pick those areas in my life and align them with what Jesus has commanded. <clears throat> the second thing, letter B, love one another. Love one another. And I can see maybe you questioning right now, like, Matt, it's kind of redundant, man. Like, you said love God and love people and then love one another. I mean, isn't that kind of the same thing? Right, but let's remember our context. Here's what Jesus is saying in John 13, 34 through 35. So now, this is Jesus talking to his disciples. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. I want to notice something that Jesus is not talking to a bunch of people who are, are trying to figure out who he is or maybe some people who are passing through town and just wanted to, to sit and um, try to you know, figure out, I've heard about this guy, you know, let me, let me check him out a little bit. He's not telling this to bystanders, people on the fence, if they're going to give their life and believe. No, no, he's not telling that to those group of people. He's talking to his disciples in this passage. Love each other. Yes, love your neighbor. Yes, love other people. But you're, all suppo you're also supposed to be loving other disciples, other Christ followers the way Jesus set the example. <clears throat> he's, telling every, he's telling them, everyone around you will know you're not just a disciple of somebody, but you're my disciples by the way you show love to other believers. <clears throat> now, there's plenty of passages I could use to back up my point, but this one passage in John 13 should put to rest all of the arguing and hateful interactions between fellow Christ followers across the globe. It should put an end to it. Now, um, let me walk up in your house a little bit and get a little bit personal. I'm gonna say this statement again and make one little change. This lone passage to the rest, um, uh, should put to rest 
all of the arguing and hateful interactions between fellow Christ followers across the globe and online. This happens, right? You and I both see it all the time. Sometimes it's every day. Somebody posts a clip or a quote or a message from some somebody or references a preacher somebody doesn't like and they feel, you know, another Christian person jumps online to say, you know, you shouldn't follow them and this person's a heretic and how in the world you don't understand what that means and they feel like it's their job to openly correct people from behind a screen that they don't even know. I want to remind us of something here. If the way we communicate to other people is the same way the world communicates to other people, we are not living Christ's example and showing the world that we are His. We do that by the way we show love to, yes, our neighbor, which is everyone, but also to other people believers, even ones we disagree with. We are not in a competition with other churches, ministries, pastors, Christians, or denominations. We are on the same team. If we profess Jesus Christ is Lord, and that he's the only way to heaven, he's the only son of God. If we profess that, we're on the same team. And even more importantly, Jesus commands his disciples to love each other. We're not in competition with one another. The second and last point that I want to bring us today is this. Disciples of Christ emulate him. Disciples of Christ emulate emulate him. And by him, I mean Jesus. <clears throat> Let me read another quote here from Doug Greenwald, okay? While not overtly required, disciples invariably had a deep desire to emulate their rabbi. This often included imitating how their rabbi ate, observed the Sabbath, what he liked and disliked, as well as his mannerisms, prejudices, and preferences. Some disciples would even go to extreme lengths to try to imitate their rabbi. Now, if I was imitating a rabbi, he would have to like donuts because I have a donut problem. And so I need somebody who, if I'm imitating the way he ate, my boy's got to like donuts at least once a week, like a Bavarian cream and a plain cake from Rainbow right down the street. I have a problem because I live one mile from my favorite donut shop, but this is way off the point. So let me get back to the message here. So these disciples had a deep desire to emulate their rabbi and their teacher. Now, there is a story, I'm not sure if it's true or not, but there's a story that has been told of one disciple during that time frame who wanted to emulate his, who so wanted to emulate his rabbi that he hid in the rabbi's home to see how the rabbi treated and interacted with his wife so he could treat his wife in in the same way. Now, first of all, don't do this. If this is not uh, something that I'm telling you to go do, please don't do this. This is kind of like creeper status to me. Like when I read this, I was like, I felt a little violated for whoever this guy was, this rabbi, you know? And I put myself in that position. Like, 
Nina and I are in the kitchen and we're preparing a meal, you know, after a long day of work and all that. And we sit down at the table and we start to have dinner together and we're talking, have a conversation. We've been home at a several, several hours. And then from out behind the curtain, somebody goes, hey, how you doing? That's, that's a, probably a bad thing to do for the pool household, right? Because you're going to be shot, uh, beat up uh, in the hospital and arrested, probably in, those, in that order, right? Like, so don't do this. <clears throat> but whether this story is true or not, it's a, it's, it's a representation and a reflection of how these, just how deeply they wanted to emulate. These disciples in the first century wanted to emulate their rabbi. Notice <clears throat> the disciples in this, in this definition of emulating their rabbi. Notice the disciples compare their life to their rabbi and teacher. End of story. The disciples aren't comparing their life to other believers who have, or unbelievers who have their same profession. They're not comparing their life to disciples of people who are some far off or pagan religion. They're not comparing their life to maybe another believer, another follower of Christ who might be uh, doing something a little different. No, they didn't compare their life to anyone except their rabbi, except their teacher, except the, the one they had submitted to and were being discipled by. And if there were areas that did not measure up to their rabbi or teacher's standard, they changed their behavior in submission to him. They changed their behavior in submission to him. So if we're, as disciples of Christ, supposed to be emulating him, what things are we supposed to be emulating? Let's read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. He never sinned, nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered, He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we could be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds you are healed. And once you were like sheep who wandered away, but now you have turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your souls. So... If I, as a disciple of Christ, am not supposed to be comparing my life to other people and saying things like, eh, that guy gets drunk on the weekends and I stopped drinking, so yeah, I'm not that bad. I'm doing pretty good. Or we say things like, eh, you know, that guy, you know, he works too much, doesn't really spend time with his kids, and I get to spend more time than that guy. I'm not doing too bad. <clears throat> These are the comparisons we're not supposed to be making. We're supposed to be comparing our life against the teachings and the life of Christ. And this scripture I just read in 1 Peter 2 is just the tip of the iceberg of Christ's character. So now, <clears throat> not you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use myself as an example. I'm going to ask myself the question of, there's six things that were listed in this scripture that 
Since he is our example, we must follow his steps. So what are they? <clears throat> he never sinned. <sighs> Strike one for Matt. No, none of us can say that we never sinned, right? I'm the first and I will be the first one to step in front of the line and say, yes, I have, I have sinned. Strike one. Number two, nor deceived anyone. Ay, this is not going really good for me <clears throat> because swing and a miss. Strike two for me on this one. Jesus never fudged a few of the numbers on his taxes to increase his return. He never said that more people lived in his home than really did to try to up his exceptions so he would pay less in taxes. <clears throat> he didn't tell the cop when he got pulled over what he thought the cop wanted to hear, which kind of bent the truth a little bit to get out of a ticket. He never heard what someone else said and twisted it in a way that it would make him look good and someone else look bad. All of these things, all of these actions are rooted in deception. And if I'm completely transparent, he never deceived anyone, but I'm guilty of that. Number three, <clears throat> he did not retaliate when he was insulted. This would be strike three for me, and I'd be out, right? Like, strike three, I'm out. He, never he did not retaliate when he was insulted. <clears throat> Have you ever heard someone say something, you know, tell a story about how they were disrespected or somebody, you know, who was outside of their family or maybe inside their family who called them names or tore them down and said a whole bunch of hurtful things to them. You ever heard a story like that? I'm sure you probably have. I have. <clears throat> and then not being in the situation at all, have you sat back and said, they better be glad that wasn't me. Because if they said that to me, oh, it'd be on. I, I would say this and then that, and then this will lead to that. And then we'd be scrapping on the ground and you ain't nobody going to talk to me that way. You ever said that? Cause I have. <clears throat> But Jesus never retaliated when he was insulted. Number four, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. When I read this one, <clears throat> this is like strike four. That's not even a thing in baseball, right? Like it's three strikes and you're out. But I'm on strike four because I know plenty of times when I was a younger man and throughout my life where People have said stuff to me, have hurt me. And I absolutely said, I'm going to get you back. <clears throat> Jesus never threatened revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. This one, this one cut me deep because there's been times in my life where other people have done me wrong or I perceived them to do me wrong. And I'm like, man, well, I know this, 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 and this about this person. I'm going <clears> to <throat> take all this evidence. I'm going to go to someone who can, who can really do something about this and lay this on the table and lay this, on the, uh, lay this out and be like, yeah, bro, I'm, are you going to say stuff about me or do something about me or, you know, say whatever it is, you know, in whatever point in time in my life or whatever, and you're going to do all of that? 
<clears throat> but I got this and I'm going to make my case to defend myself. But here Jesus is completely falsely accused of wrongdoing. Never sinned, never did anything wrong, completely condemned to die. And he leaves his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. If you're keeping score, that's strike five for Matt. Number six, so that we could be dead to sin and live for what is right. I like to think that as I matured in my life, and I was trying to say that so I didn't say get older, because I ain't old. But as I've matured in my life, I have hopefully gotten better at this for living what is right. But I know that there were points in my life, definite points in my life, where I was not caring what was right and wrong. I just lived for what I wanted to do. Not for what was right, but for what was right to Matt. That's what I did. Strike six. That's not like standing up there and striking out once, which is embarrassing, I'm sure. But waving off the next batter and standing back at the plate and going, no, I got this this time, really, and then striking out completely again back-to-back times. When I compare myself not to other people, but to the life that Christ examples and his character, if I'm supposed to be emulating him, I've got some work to do. As I mentioned before, this list is not exhaustive or all-inclusive. It's merely the tip of the iceberg of Jesus' character. And we find how he commands us to live all throughout his word. Why did I take a, a little bit of an extended moment to talk about comparison and making sure we're emulating Christ and not comparing our life to anyone else, but just against Jesus and Scripture. That should be our comparison. Why? Because comparing our lives to others only results in one of two things. Pride or envy. Think about it. If you compare your life to someone and in your eyes you're doing better than them, what happens? You kind of puff up a little bit. Man, I'm doing pretty good. Not doing as bad as that sucker over there. Not doing as bad as that girl. Not doing as bad as that guy. Not doing as bad as that family or fill in the blank. And you kind of get puffed up a little bit with arrogance, thinking, man, I'm doing pretty good. And then go the other way and think, man, I compared my life against somebody or someone, and I don't measure up. It leaves me in a position of feeling down and envious of, how did they get there? How are they the one that gets to do the thing that I wanted to do? Comparison I've heard it said that it's a thief of joy, and it is, but it only leads to two ends, pride or envy. I had a third point for this message, but as I was getting ready earlier today, a few hours ago, I just kind of felt like the Holy Spirit say, we're going to stop right there and digest. And so my, my question to all of us is this. How does my life compare to Jesus and his word. It's probably not a question that can be answered by anyone else but you. And part of the 
part of the thing that personally I go through when I get ready for these messages and the Lord drops these things on my heart or I see them in Scripture and the Holy Spirit reveals things, especially when I ask you questions, I've had to ask myself first. I've had to come home and go in the bathroom and look at that big rectangle above the sink, my mirror, and look at the guy in the reflection and go, am I really emulating God? Am I really submitting to the way Jesus has instructed me to live? Am I acting on his commands? Have I truly given up the rights to my own life? And no one else can really answer that question. My wife, who knows me better than any other human being on the planet, could probably have a little bit of insight and say, you know, I think you might be, you know, I see your actions and could help me identify a couple things that I might be falling short on, but ultimately the responsibility lies with each individual person to be honest enough with ourselves to go, how am I stacking up against the example of my rabbi, my teacher, my Lord, my Savior, Jesus Christ? If your answer is like mine, and it says, I've got some work to do, especially on those six things that we just read in 1 Peter. You're not alone, my friend. I don't want you to hear any condemnation for you. I want you to hear that there is grace for you. There's grace for me. There's no super, we say this often at at church, there's no superheroes in our congregation. There's no superheroes on the staff doesn't matter if you're the pastor or someone who's been there for the first time. There's no superheroes. Every single person, including every church leader, or staff member, or pastor, or evangelist, whatever the, the title would be, has to also submit our lives to this. Because ultimately, all of us are disciples of Christ. <clears throat> if, you're, if you've been sitting there during this message and you have these things in your heart that have kind of leapt up to your attention. I honestly believe that's the Holy Spirit pushing things to your mind through His grace and the loving conviction that only He can bring and will tell you, let's me and you deal with this together. So I'm going to encourage you, like we do every week, I'm going to encourage you to later on, maybe tonight after this live stream is done or maybe later this week, to find several moments, several, uh, just carve out a chunk of time, even if it's as little as 20 or 30 minutes, and sit with just you and the Lord and ask Him, are there anything that you have commanded me to do that I am not acting on? Is there anything that I need to emulate in you that I am not emulating i'm not submitting to i'm not following you in and when he brings those things up my friend repent of them turn your mind to a different direction ask for his forgiveness and follow his lead 
this seems like a really difficult thing and it it can be to look at yourself in the mirror but if we're going to follow the instructions of Jesus and we're going to truly become disciples not congregants not people who just wander in and out and try to check off the uh, a, a list or a box of saying yeah I, I watched the service this week or I attended or I gave him the offering or whatever that's not what we're talking about we're talking about people who say I want to follow the instructions and leading of Jesus Christ, my Savior, my leader, my Lord. And I want to do the things he has said to do. I believe probably every single one of us have areas we can work on in our life. And while we're possibly confined at home and there's a lot less to do or there's a lot less we're able to do, Let's just not go crazy, but let's take some time and say, Lord, what can I do to submit to you more? What can I do to emulate you and act on your commands? One of the first things I know we can do from a practical level is spend time in his word. Because we're not going to be able to follow his commands if we don't know what they are.